follow in the footsteps of the Cartier Panther with the Pontaire de Cartier jewelry collection. A creative signature of the Maison, the Cartier Panther has been reinvented time and time again since her first sighting in 1914. Magnetic, feline, and wild, she is a force to be reckoned with, evolving with each design. Unbox the newest pieces in the Pontaire de Cartier collection at Cartier.com. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. For the past couple of weeks, we've been running a little experiment here at The Art Angle, namely our first ever breakout miniseries called Shattering the Glass Ceiling that is dedicated to remarkable women in the art world who have succeeded in changing the game in their respective arenas. It's such a good group of interviews, and we want to make sure that you have the chance to hear it. We also, it so happens, are taking a little Memorial Day vacation to rest up after the launch of Artnet News Pro, our brand new members-only offering for participants in the art trade. And so, without further ado, please enjoy this re-air of the first installment of Shattering the Glass Ceiling, featuring Artnet News Executive Editor Julia Halpern talking to the powerhouse curator Lauren Haynes, who recently took a prominent post at Duke University's Nasher Museum. Here is the conversation. You very much have to find your own path, and it doesn't necessarily have to look just like someone else's story or someone else's path. And that has been advice that has stood out to me. It's been advice that I give my team. Welcome to Shattering the Glass Ceiling, a podcast from the team at The Art Angle, where we speak to boundary-breaking women in the art world and beyond about how art has shaped their lives and careers. I'm Julia Halperin, the executive editor of Artnet News and the first in a rotating cast of hosts. For the first episode of this four podcast mini series, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lauren Haynes, director of artists initiatives and curator of contemporary art at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art and the Momentary in Arkansas. In June, she will take on the role of Patsy R. and Raymond D. Nasher, senior curator of contemporary art at the Nasher Museum of Art. Lauren, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me, where are you calling us from right now? So right now I am in Bentonville and in my apartment, which I guess doubles as an office home, all of those things right now. And if Google and Wikipedia are correct, you're originally from Tennessee. Yes. So I was born in East Tennessee in a town outside of Knoxville called La Follette and lived there till I was 12. And then we moved to New York City, where both my parents were from. So I grew up going to New York my whole life. What is your earliest memory of encountering art? Was that in New York? You know, I've been thinking a lot about this. And honestly, I think if we think about art in the widest sense, probably my older sister danced and she was part of like the dance company in our town in Tennessee and was very good. I was not good. I tried to take dance lessons and got kicked out because I did not want to follow the rules. Um, but honestly, that was sort of my first experience with the arts. Do you remember your first museum experience? My first real museum experience honestly didn't happen until I got to college. So I went to Oberlin and I went to Oberlin because I wanted to be a lawyer. I went and visited and sat in on some constitutional law classes and loved it. But when I got there, 
I needed a work-study job, and there was a work-study job available in the Allen Memorial Art Museum, which is Oberlin's museum. And at the time, I didn't know this, but it's an amazing museum. But I figured I could do whatever the job was, and it was to work with the director's assistant. And at the time, Sharon Patton was the director of the Allen, and Sharon was an African-American woman art historian who literally wrote books on African-American art history. Again, didn't know this at the time, but my first real experience in a museum was seeing a Black woman running the place. So to me, it was like, okay, this is a space that people who look like me can be in. And I started taking art history classes at the advice of an RA. And so simultaneously really having these two experiences of taking art history classes and then working in the museum really sparked my love and interest in art and museums. And so at what point did you decide like, okay, it's not going to be law. I'm going to pursue art as a career. Yeah, you know, it was fairly quickly, actually, because I continued to take art history classes. Oberlin has something called winter term where the month of January, there aren't classes on campus, but you do different projects. And my first one was actually at a gallery in New York City that no longer exists, Charles Cole's Art Gallery, because one of the directors at the time was an Oberlin alum. And so I got that and had that experience and quickly learned that I wasn't necessarily going to work in a gallery, but still, again, more exposure to art and continuing to take art history classes really was like, okay, there are jobs in this field. I'm really interested in this. Like, I don't really remember having concerns when it came time to pick a major about putting art history because I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm interested in. And probably, you know, you were able to see uh, people working in different capacities, which I think if you come in cold and you don't see people actually doing the thing, it's like how people who grow up with parents as actors are like, oh, yeah, that can be a job. Right. Especially because in the museum, you know, even as departmental assistant or whatever my job title was, you're getting exposed to all the various pieces, right? And not even so much the curatorial realm, but all the other pieces of like, okay, well, there's a director, there's an assistant, there's people who manage finance, there are people who deal with the art, there's a whole education team. There are all these pieces that it's like, okay, I may not know exactly what I want to do yet, but I do know that there is something that could possibly align with my interest in art that could live in this space. And that's just one facet of the art world, right? So you're right. I think there was very much, okay, there are people that do things in this world that I could potentially find something that I like. Okay, so this is a singular rapid fire question, but I'm asking because I don't think that I could do it if I was asked. If you had to describe what it means to be a curator in four words, how would you do it? Okay, look, write, computer, <laughs> art, I guess. There you art go. To be there. <laughs> Love it. It's like, yeah. You go through the whole process. I like it. Right. <laughs> So you have worked at some of the biggest and best known museums in the U.S., the Brooklyn Museum, the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Crystal Bridges Museum. And I wonder in going through those kind of hollowed places, what have you learned about what makes a nurturing environment for creative thinking? Yeah, I sort of say very early in my career, I was blessed with really amazing bosses. My first boss was Terry Carbone, who at the time was the curator of American art at the Brooklyn 
museum. And she very much took me under her wing and helped me learn the job, but also learn a museum and sort of learn what it meant to even be close to a curatorial process. And that experience was very brief. I was there for maybe nine months. And then a job at the Studio Museum opened up and I started there as a curatorial assistant. And Christine Y. Kim was my boss. And then Thelma Golden, obviously, was director and chief curator. So getting to work with Thelma and then staying at the Studio Museum and working more closely with Thelma and sort of other curators that came in. For me, I very much learned that you need an environment where particularly when you're working in a creative field like museums and contemporary curating, where you're trying to sell people on your ideas and get people excited about artists and art that you're excited about. You need an environment where it's okay if maybe you don't have a fully formed idea, but you have people that you can bounce things off of, right? And in a way that doesn't necessarily feel competitive, but a way that it feels like, okay, this is what I'm thinking. How does this fit? How does this tie to our institutional goals? What are we trying to do? But also having a boss and people who are supportive to be like, you know what? No, that's not quite it. Or maybe have you thought about this or maybe this will happen in a little bit. But also you need a place where you can be vulnerable and a place where you can not feel like every idea has to be a winner because that's never possible or true. And not feeling like, oh, man, I just feel so broken down and beat down because I don't feel supported. So I think those are some of the ways in which the process and how I've sort of been interested in being a curator and the people that I've learned from have really made that the environment for me. Can you think of an idea that you developed that was either received as like a no, not now, or like rerouted in a way that ended up existing in reality, but in a productive way? One that felt very much like a project or an artist that I wanted to work with, but it never was quite the right moment until it was, was the Alma Thomas exhibition that I worked on at the Studio Museum. And I co-curated that with Ian Barry at the Tang Museum at Skidmore. And I worked closely with the Studio Museum's collection and got to know some of the works in there. And there were some beautiful Alma Thomas works, small works, but still beautiful works in the collection. And I was obsessed with them for a while and always really wanted to do something, but never really could sort of pinpoint what that right thing was. And so having conversations with Thelma and having conversations with the team, it was always sort of like, okay, maybe not quite yet. How about this? Not yet. And then pairing up with Ian, who was having similar conversations around wanting to do an Alma Thomas exhibition. And really it just struck as this is the right moment for both institutions. Let's do this. Let's make this catalog. Let's do this exhibition. So yeah, it really sometimes just takes timing, but also being persistent about ideas too, not even just with your institution, but also with yourself, right? And not saying, okay, well, this maybe didn't gain traction the first time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to put it away completely. It just means like I can keep thinking about it, keep working on it, and then hopefully the right moment will come. And you've talked about a couple of different women that you sort of worked under when you were getting into this field. And I wonder if you could pull out maybe one or two mentors who have really sort of shaped the way you think and what you took away from those experiences. Yeah, I mean, I think consistently for the last, I don't know, 10 plus years, I don't even know how long I've been doing this, but really Thelma Golden stands out for me and I know many others in the field, particularly Black women curators, curators of color, 
as an inspiration. For me, you know, the advice and Thelma has given a lot to me in my career, but one of the things that sort of has stood out, she has said, you know, Lauren, there's no one way to be a curator. You very much have to find your own path and it doesn't necessarily have to look just like someone else's story or someone else's path. And that has been advice that has stood out to me. It's been advice that I give my team, my colleagues, because it just, you know, it seems simple in a way if you really think about it, but having someone who is established in the field and has carved a path for themselves and carved space for others, saying that is a difference between feeling it, then it's like, oh, right, this is true. This is someone who actually knows what they're talking about. It's just been something that has stuck with me and felt very important. Are there choices in your career that you sort of feel like that gave you permission to make or that that empowered you to make? Less about specific choices, but more about being open to different opportunities in a way and sort of thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be a contemporary curator who's not centered and based in New York? What does it mean to think about ways of working at larger institutions in scale compared to what the Studio Museum was and sort of the place that I had learned and where I really figured out how to do this work and going somewhere larger like Crystal Bridges. So all these things really felt like it more opened up places that maybe if I felt like, oh man, I have to be on a strict path, right? Of only wanting to be at certain institutions in New York and only wanting to work with certain artists and only wanting to do certain things, then that would have been a different career. But I think for me, it was exciting to think about other opportunities and other places and where I could continue to do the work and what I'm interested in. And actually, just for people who may not know, can you sort of explain the difference in terms of size and approach between the Studio Museum and Crystal Bridges? Sure. So the Studio Museum, which was founded in 1950, is a museum that is dedicated and committed to artists of African descent and work inspired by Black culture. The Studio Museum currently is physically closed, but will reopen in a few years with a beautiful new building designed by David Ajay and Associates. And it's located in Harlem in New York City on 125th Street. And it really is the place that many people think of as the center of the Black art world in the United States because of either artists that have been through the program or artists that have been through the museum's artist and residency program, which is a core part of its mission and sort of the studio in its name. And at the time when I left, there were probably about 50-ish people that worked at the Studio Museum, including part-time, full-time, the whole team. And Crystal Bridges is a museum that was founded in 2011, so approaching its 10th anniversary in Bentonville, Arkansas, and is an American art museum, so sort of more expansive in the artists that it shows, but still focused on art that's American And doesn't just focus on contemporary, but has a whole range of works. Also, we opened a new space last year called The Momentary, which is only focused on contemporary art, but contemporary visual arts, performing arts, and culinary arts. And across both Crystal Bridges and The Momentary, probably I would say around close to 400 people work across both spaces. So you sort of see the staff scale and the um, mission scale across both institutions, the difference. (laughs) 
during your time at Crystal Bridges, I know the museum reinstalled a lot of his galleries in part to revise the stories of art history that we're used to seeing, which tend to privilege the contributions of white men. So I wonder if you could talk about some of the ways that you worked to integrate other voices into the narrative. So can you talk about sort of doing that in rewriting the more contemporary story? I think in the contemporary story, we not necessarily have it easier because I think the work is just different, but to speak to yeah the work that my colleagues like Mindy Besaw, who's our curator of American art at Crystal Bridges, had to do when they reinstalled those galleries was also very much borrow works, acquire different works, but also tell the stories and be really honest about this is what we're looking at and this is who's actually left out of this narrative. Whereas in contemporary, it really is a lot about, okay, We can sort of look and see who are the artists that are most often collected in museums, who are most often shown in white men, right? We know this. But what about all the other artists that we know are out there, have made work? I think, again, my time at the Studio Museum made some of these conversations a little more for me, sort of like, of course, like I, you know, started my career in an institution that's dedicated to Black artists. So of course there are Black artists across our collection that belong in these museums, belong in the walls and have stories to tell, but also extends to Indigenous artists, Latin American artists, Asian American artists, all artists of a variety of backgrounds that we really just need to, I think, push ourselves to also say, well, what is the work that we're really trying to do? And at Crystal Bridges, we're trying to tell the story and tell stories about what it means to be an American art museum. What does it mean to live in America? What does it mean to even say American art? And to be able to do that in a way that feels at all truthful, you have to be expansive. You have to be inclusive in the voices that you're bringing in, the artists that you're showing, the people who are working in your institution. There's no way to tell that more truthful and honest story without being more open to who you're showing and what you're thinking about. Can you think of like a certain maybe juxtaposition or like corner in a gallery where you feel like you were able to tweak the story or upend the story in a way that is really evident when you walk in or when you pass by? I think about one of the earliest works that I helped to bring into the collection was a work by Thelrith Hines, a Black artist based in D.C. His work is beautiful and abstract and he, you know, is not necessarily super well-known. He has a really also interesting career in that he was a conservator that worked at museums in D.C. for basically his whole career. So there's also really that interesting like story about someone who was very much in the world and in the art world, but not necessarily being collected by these institutions. And so when we acquired this work, we made a very conscious effort to really think about, you know, where is this going in the contemporary galleries? What section does it go in? And so putting it in our abstract expressionism section, putting it sort of near a corner between Mark Rothko and putting it close to some Helen Frankenthaler works really helped to pull out this story. Some museums take an approach where, okay, let's put all the Black artists, regardless of time period, together. Let's put all the Latinx artists, regardless of time period, together, right? And that's not the approach that was that Crystal Bridges or one that we have now. So that wasn't necessarily something we were fighting against, but it was very much sort of saying, okay, let's put this work where it belongs, where it would have been in sort of this art historical narrative that we have in the galleries. 
I do think about how that kind of placement can just lock in your brain if you're seeing it for the first time. Like I went to college in New York and one of the assignments was to go to MoMA and pick a work and write a paper on it. And I did Robert Rauschenberg's bed and I spent a ton of time sitting in that gallery and the kind of like story of assemblage. And then I remember like many years later going to see a booth of Betty Sarr's work in Art Basel, Miami Beach. And she said, I wasn't looking at Rauschenberg. Rauschenberg was looking at me. Her work was nowhere near his work in the way it was installed at the time I was going to see it at MoMA. And I just think about how like that progression that they laid out in the galleries at that time became my baseline. And then I had to learn more to kind of unravel it. And so, you know, if you're the first place that someone is going to see a story of art unfold, it's a big responsibility you're kind of like their art parent. Like the stuff your parents tell you is like the thing you assume and then you have to unlearn it. Do you think about that as kind of like the people who are coming, I might be the first place where they're going to see this story unfold? Absolutely. I mean, I think back to my first experience at a museum, right? So of course, having Sharon Patton as the director, but then going into the galleries at the Allen and being drawn to and going to the contemporary galleries and seeing these beautiful photographs by Rashid Johnson, the series that he did when he was in Chicago of homeless people. And there's one called Jonathan with hands. And that photo has like stayed with me forever, essentially. And I think it's interesting as you know, Rashid's career has grown and blossomed and how maybe he doesn't do as much photography now. But for me, those photographs were something that really stuck with me. There was a beautiful Allison Saar sculpture in the Allens collection that I also was very much drawn to. So again, the ways in which that museum was telling these stories and having artists of all different types in these galleries stuck with me, right? So being able to then find works I still think about to this day is that same experience that you were talking about, right? And I think the power that museums have, and particularly larger encyclopedic museums in our major cities across the world have to really guide what people's art experiences are and how people think about art and how they can really impact and change their lives, I think is something that doesn't often really get talked about as much. And I think is another reason why we really have to do this work to diversify who is telling these stories, diversify who is actually in these collections because you want to make sure that there are multiple viewpoints that are being brought into these conversations. This is a work-life balance question, especially with the art industry, even when it's not a moment where you live and work in the same place, you know, it can be very all-consuming. You know, there's a lot of extracurricular stuff that is expected. And so I'm wondering sort of how you create and maintain healthy boundaries and how you learn to do that. Yeah, for sure. Probably Everywhere where you live, if you work at a museum or interested in arts, you could fill all of your time with your work, but then also going to see other art and experiences that are existing in your community. My family lives outside of Atlanta, so sort of spending time talking to them, FaceTiming with them, visiting them when that was a thing that you could do was something that helped with that balance. I tried to sort of limit the amount of times that I would drag my nephew and nieces to the museums, only so many trips to the high that they would sort of let me take them on. But I also have very much tried to turn off sometimes the sort of work brain and just turn on the TV, honestly, watch things that 
Oftentimes, if I tell people that I watch them, they're like, really? That's very interesting. Everyone knows this, so I'm less embarrassed about this, but I am a huge watcher of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. You are in great company. Listen, I'd had a Bachelorette bracket with my college roommates for a while. (laughs) Yeah, this franchise is very important to my life. So there are those moments. And then also, I think... You know, living here in Northwest Arkansas, it is a beautiful part of the country. There are beautiful trails. Try to be outside. Also, if I'm reading, read things sort of balance between, okay, well, this is a book that is for work or for art, but also this is a book that is completely opposite of that. And, you know, I got a cat about a year ago during quarantine. Um, Her name is Daisy. And so she demands attention at very specific times. So she also helps sort of take me out of that. But man, work-life balance is really (laughs) something that I think I honestly, particularly during this time, I've never really understood how my colleagues, particularly women with children, do this work. But they do a fantastic job, but especially at this last year, people with families or people who have to take care of kids or parents or anyone. It's just really been amazing to sort of see what has happened and how people have needed to have space made and ask for it. And it's been given. You know, I think we're always saying, well, what are we going to take past this moment? And what are we going to sort of leave behind? And I think being able to be more responsive and receptive to people who need maybe non-traditional working schedules or we need to actually maybe really not send as many emails on the weekend or all these different things to really make space for people to do everything that they need to do, I think is something that more people have experienced over this last year. So hopefully that can help us with this balance. So I want to ask about your new job as well. Your new job is at the National Museum of Art in Durham, North Carolina at Duke University. That is a museum that has a record for really excellent scholarly shows, particularly of contemporary art. But one thing it does not have, I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, is Walmart money. And so, you know, I wonder what it is that drew you there and sort of what you're able to do or what you anticipate being able to do at the Nasher that you maybe couldn't at Crystal Bridges. Yeah, you know, I think a lot back to some of those first experiences that I had at Oberlin and at the Allen. So for me, that real introduction to museums was in a college art museum. So I've always very much been interested in what college and university art museums and art galleries do and the work that comes out of it, because I think there's just something that speaks to this idea of who is your audience and having students as an audience, having a community as an audience is just really something that's been fascinating to me because of this formative experience that this small type of institution had for me. So that's always been something that I've been drawn to. You know, very early on in my time at the Studio Museum, the Studio Museum took the Barclay L. Hendricks Birth of the Cool Show from the Nasher that Trevor Schoonmaker, who's now the director, curated. And so I got to sort of work on that as a curatorial assistant for the Studio Museum. And that was just a another formative experience. Can you tell people who Barclay Hendricks is too? So Barclay L. Hendricks was an African-American painter who is no longer with us, but has created since the 60s, 70s, these amazing portraits of people in his community, a lot of it based in Philadelphia, where he also taught for a while, but he also made beautiful landscapes, abstract works, just really 
works that speak to the African-American experience. Barkley was also a photographer. If you ever saw him, he had often multiple cameras around his neck at openings, at events, because that's how he really experienced the world. And so being able to work on this show and sort of meet this artist and meet his wife, Susan, and get to know Trevor and the team at the Nasher, even as colleagues. And again, I was so junior in this process. But that experience to me sort of cemented the Nasher as an institution that made really exciting and important shows. And also one that felt of a similar scale at the time to the Studio Museum, right? A smaller institution that also at that time was still newish because around 2005 is when the Nasher really opened. And so that has always been in my mind. And this idea that, you know, the Nasher and the team there has this commitment to contemporary art, yes, but also telling stories and showing artists and collecting artists that maybe are left out of some larger mainstream institutions. So I think that to me is also something that I've been thinking a lot about. One of the reasons why I was so excited to come to Crystal Bridges about four and a half years ago was because of the work that the team was doing, right? To sort of say, you know what, we do want to tell these more diverse and inclusive stories and we're still young. So there's also a way that you're not fighting against hundreds of years of collecting history in that story, right? So that was similar for me, this idea of going somewhere where the work was already being started, the work to really think about how do you tell more inclusive and diverse stories in a collection and not just depend on one person to do it. You know, I think there's just this appeal also for me of being at a maybe smaller institution. I think the work that's happening at Crystal Bridges in the momentary is fantastic and I love it. You know, we actually opened a whole new space during my time here. So being a part of opening the momentary, I think is going to be one of the highlights of my career for a very long time. And, you know, Crystal Bridges just announced an expansion last week. So this idea that there's going to be more gallery space and more exhibition space is also just really exciting to see what the future holds for this institution. So it just felt like, okay, this is a time when I can do this and really be excited about what I can do at the Nasher, what I can contribute, but also to be really proud and excited of the work that I've done here at Crystal Bridges in the momentary. And so last question for you is, you probably get this anytime you speak to a group of young people. Do you have advice for people who are looking to go into curating art history museums who may not have grown up around them or sort of have an easy path in? I don't know if I have like just one piece of advice, but I sort of always think about how you have to learn to look and learn to like really see work. And so I say see as much art as you can if you're interested in contemporary art. And even if you don't necessarily live somewhere where there's like a thriving scene, go to college and university galleries, see what's going on in alternative spaces and talk to people. That's also, I think, maybe the advice that I would give, sort of talk to people at openings, talk to people at museums, talk to the front of house staff, talk to whoever you can in a way, because I think there are often these ways of making connections and sort of even saying, oh, you know, I'm interested in this. Who should I talk to? Because, you know, people that work at museums love working at museums and I think love helping other people understand what it means to do that work and to be in that space. So I think asking questions and honestly, just realizing and feeling like, and this is probably very hard because I know it was hard for me to realize that even if you didn't grow up going to museums, even if it wasn't something that, you know, you did 
all throughout your childhood. It's a space where you belong and a space where you can be and a space where you're allowed to ask questions and look at things and take pictures and do all these things that some of us feel like we're not allowed to because oh, these aren't traditionally spaces, particularly I think people of color feel like, oh, this isn't a space for me. I shouldn't be here. You should be there. Um, You should be in all aspects of it. So really asking those questions, talking to people, being present, I think is something that is always going to be important. And it's a way for you to even get a better understanding of what it means to want to do this work. Thank you so much, Lauren. I really appreciate it. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for listening to Shattering the Glass Ceiling. Be sure to check out the rest of the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Shattering the Glass Ceiling is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein.